Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least. The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you, and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. Well, I'm delighted to welcome this week's guest to my podcast, Senator James Patterson, who has been Senator for Victoria since 2016 and is currently Shadow Minister for Home Affairs and Shadow Minister for Cybersecurity and has been a leading light um, in the areas of human rights for religious and ethnic minority groups. And I would say an intellectual leading light um, in the Liberal Party. It's fantastic to have you on board um, and our conversation this morning, James. Thanks for having me, Katie, and congratulations on this really important initiative. It's a great conversation to have. Thank you. Well, um, I've you know watched with interest uh, so many things that you've been contributing um, to the parliament in the last many years that you've been there. Obviously, you were a very young senator to begin with, and you were wise beyond your years. But um, it's great to see someone who's got such um, strong intellectual approach. I think, to policy. I always enjoy hearing your arguments. You may not always agree with them, but we need to have a contest of ideas. And it's um, those contest of ideas respectfully spoken about, which is at the basic premise, I think, of our party of freedom of speech um, and the ability um, to have that contest. It's good for democracy. Um, and I'm really enjoying some of the contribution that you're making at the moment um, when we look at how this Labor government is dealing with both cybersecurity and, of course, um, domestic and national security. So I thought I'd sort of kick off by talking about what's in the news today, and that is the Russian hacks and the HWL um, Ebsworth um, attacks and 40 government departments. Can you give us a bit of background about what's happening and what's gone wrong? Hey, what we're seeing in recent months and years is an increase in very sophisticated cyber attacks against private businesses. HWL Ebsworth is just the latest in a long line. We've all been familiar with the Optus attack, the Medibank attack, the Latitude Financial attack. These are becoming increasingly common. And what these criminal actors are trying to do is make a profit. And what they typically do is get onto a business's network. They try to lock up or steal their data. And they either refuse to return that data to the business or they threaten to release that data on the internet if it's sensitive, unless the business makes a payment. Now, HWL Ebsworth, it was already a very bad attack, which we've known about for a couple of weeks. And it appears that uh, four terabytes of data belonging to their clients has been stolen. But what's emerged in the last couple of days is it appears that among that data that has been stolen is the data of several federal government departments. We learned in the Australian uh, just today that that could include the Department of Home Affairs, the Australian Federal Police, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and other sensitive national security related agencies who were clients of the firm because the firm acts for a number of public sector clients. Now, that's extremely concerning because that not only has implications for the privacy of people who are dealing with those departments, but potentially national security ramifications. So it's very critical that the government gets to the bottom of what data has been taken, what data is available and out there, and what they can do to recover it without uh, rewarding the hackers for doing so. So, you know, the Australian Cybersecurity Centre is, um, you know, organisation that, you know, is funded um, to sort of deal with these issues, but I understand their funding, their funding has been cut in the last budget? 
Is that the right response going forward? Yeah, remarkably, given the cybersecurity threat environment which we face, which is just getting worse and worse, the uh, Albanese Labor government plans to cut the amount of money it spends on cybersecurity through the Department of Home Affairs over the next few years. The budget that Jim Chalmers released just a month ago in the forward estimates shows cuts to spending uh, on cybersecurity, and some of that uh, cut, some of those cuts have come away from the Australian Signals Directorate and the Australian Cyber Security Centre, which is part of ASD. Um, I cannot understand in this cyber environment why you would even contemplate reducing their funding. I'm sure there are many other areas of government spending that could do with the trim long before you even started to look at our core national security agencies defending us against what is a, a serious and growing threat. Yeah, no, it's interesting, you know, you, you know, when we talk about what the basic premise of nationhood is, it's if you can't protect your citizens, you have nothing. Um, and it is core function of government. And as you say, we're moving from, you know, hot wars to cold wars in some ways. And so you know, online cyber threats, and we're hearing, you know, it's a, an ever constant daily threat. It, it seems bizarre to be going in the wrong direction. And, and looking what you've um, written about in the past, you've talked about a call for a national security office. So to increase and beef up our capabilities, what, what would that entail? Yeah, one of the campaigns I've been running in opposition, Katie, is about the federal government's exposure to what I've termed high-risk authoritarian technology. That is technology made in authoritarian states or controlled by authoritarian states, often by ostensibly private companies. But what's important to understand is that in a country like Russia or China, there isn't really any such thing as a private company. They're all beholden to the party or the state, and they must serve their interests, otherwise they're not allowed to exist. So what I've exposed over the last year is that federal government departments were permitting their employees to download applications like TikTok to their work-issued devices, which represents a serious cyber espionage risk, that they had deployed more than a 1,000 cameras across the federal public service made by companies called High Vision and Dawa, which are very close to the Chinese Communist Party, and most recently that thousands of drones made by the company DGI, which is sanctioned by the US government, have been used by the Defence Force, by the Federal Police and by Border Force. Now, each time I've identified these vulnerabilities and exposed them publicly, the government has agreed to address them by removing them or banning them from the federal public service. But that is not a very proactive or robust approach to cybersecurity. What we really need is the government to be on the front foot, anticipating these threats, assessing them and mitigating them long before an opposition senator thinks it might be a problem and decides to launch an audit or submit some questions on notice. So what I've called for is the establishment of a national technology security office within the Department of Home Affairs that would start the probably quite extensive task of mapping just our current existing exposure to these kind of technologies that have been purchased and deployed in the past and assessing the level of risk that they pose and the mitigation that might be required, including banning it or removing it if necessary. And then once that significant legacy caseload is dealt with, contemplating the, the future purchases of the Federal Commonwealth so that before a procurement officer in some department goes and buys and deploys this technology, which represents a risk, they do so informed about uh, the risks involved and whether or not that's a safe thing to do. And hopefully we can head off this problem at the pass. That just seems eminently sensible. I mean, if you've got security and that concept of protecting our citizens' rights in your DNA, that seems, you know, obvious. I mean, what I read in the newspaper is, you know, the US is thinking of banning TikTok and then suddenly we get this reaction from the Labor government, oh, we might ban it on government devices. So very reactive when it comes to security, Mm. feeling their way, not really leading in this area because it seems that they're playing catch up and and, and it, it is deeply disappointing. So, you know, good on you for sort of fighting that good fight. Do you think there's um, an opportunity to activate key sanctions in any of this? 
Yes, I think um, one of the disappointing things about uh, the government's action on these issues in the last year that they've been off in office is that they haven't used provisions in the Magnitsky sanctions framework, which was passed when you and I were in government by the Morrison government, which not only allows the government to sanction people guilty of human rights abuses and corrupt activity overseas, but also to sanction individuals who are responsible for cyber crimes committed against Australia or Australians. Now, we know that in the case of the Medibank attack, and it appears in the case of the HWL Ebsworth attack, that this was perpetrated by Russian-based hackers. The AFP has provided the details of the hackers responsible for Medibank to the Russian government, who's failed to take any action for it. So we know who they are. Um, no action is being taken against them. The very least that we could do is sanction them. Uh, but actually, only a few weeks ago, the government also identified uh, Chinese state-backed hackers who were involved in attacks on critical infrastructure. They did so in a joint advisory with our closest allies, uh, our five eyes partners, and uh, they've identified uh, that they are responsible for attacking civilian infrastructure, which there is no innocent reason to. So they would be another good candidate for these sort of sanctions, which unfortunately the government has not yet done. So one of the disappointing things is that the Labor government so far in its first 12 months in office has not used the Magnitsky cyber sanctions regime to target anyone who's responsible for cyber attacks against Australia. Um, this is a regime which can not only be used against human rights offenders and corrupt officials, but also those for, responsible for threatening us online. And we have some very uh, worthy case studies where it could be applied. Uh, we know, for example, that the hackers behind the Medibank attack are Russian-based, and the Australian Federal Police has provided that information to their Russian counterparts who've taken no action against them at all. Uh, we also had in recent weeks the federal government participate in a public attribution of a Chinese state-backed actor who was responsible for an attack on critical infrastructure. They, again, would be good candidates for these kinds of sanctions, but unfortunately the government hasn't yet used them. It's important that they do, though, because what we are trying to do is shape and deter bad behaviour online. And if there are no consequences for it, then people will continue to engage in it. So why don't you think they, they want to act? Are they worried about upsetting the Russians? Look, I would really hope not, and I'd find that hard to believe, given that they've also done something very commendable this week, which is to pass special legislation to take away a potential site for a Russian embassy very close to Parliament House, which they did based on very strong security advice about the risk that posed to Parliament House, and which the opposition provided bipartisan support for. Um, so it might just be that they are taking their time to get through these things, but frankly, we can't wait. Russia is a malign actor. Um, if, even if it wasn't for the invasion of Ukraine, they are a destabilising force around the world. They are hostile to our values and our interests, and we should take the top, strongest possible action we can against them. And so, you know, I know with, with regards to the war in, or in the Ukraine that um, there's been calls, I think, including from you to basically list the Wagner Group as a terrorist organisation. Do you think that will be something that the government will respond to? Look, I really hope to, because it appears that it's imminent that the United Kingdom government is about to do so. The US government has already designated them as a transnational criminal organisation. The French Senate has called on the European Union to do so. Um, and Australia could be joining our allies and friends around the world in doing so, but also leading uh, if we were one of the first to do so. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that because of their gross human rights abuses, their targeting of civilians, um, their committing of uh, potential war crimes, that Wagner easily meets the criteria to be listed as a terrorist organisation. And it's very difficult to think of any reason why we wouldn't uh, do so, uh, because it would send a very strong signal to any Australians contemplating going and serving with them that they shouldn't do so, or any Australian contemplating recruiting on their behalf or fundraising on their behalf in Australia, that it would now be a criminal offence if they did so.
Mm. And so where do you think the war in Ukraine, I mean, it's outside your portfolio, I know, but you have keen interest in foreign affairs. Um, and obviously, you know, it, the, the, the theatre is in Europe, but it's stretching all the way around the globe. Where do you think it's heading? Well, Ukraine is fighting for all of us. Uh, they are fighting for a very important principle, which is the sovereignty and self-determination of states. And we cannot allow it to be the case that large states get to just obliterate the borders and the sovereignty and the freedom of people that they want to, and that there are no adverse consequences of doing so. Because if Russia was to be successful in this case, there's no doubt in my mind that other authoritarian states would think that they could get away with this behaviour in their own domains and in their own fields. So what we're engaged in really is a clash between autocracies and democracies, and we must ensure that the democracies prevail. And that's why the assistance that we've provided Ukraine is very important. It's why it's important that it continue, and it's why important it's important that they win. And, you know, really your subtext for that is projection of um, the Chinese Communist Party um, through Russia and into Europe and, you know, this sort of change of the axis of power, I suppose. You know, how do you think that has an effect with regards to the CCP? We're not obviously talking about the Chinese people. We're in Australia have a very multicultural environment. We're very supportive of Chinese Australians and the Chinese culture. Um, but the CCP being an autocratic um, you know, dimension in, the, in, in that sort of argument about autocracy versus democracy. How do you see that playing out with regards to China projecting into Russia and potentially the impact on Taiwan and the South, South China Sea, um, uh, you know, sort of safety and security? Yeah, that's a very important point you make, Katie. Uh, Chinese Australians are not morally culpable for the actions of the Chinese government. Even Chinese people in China are not morally culpable for it. They had no say in choosing the Chinese Communist Party ruling them, and they have no opportunity to remove them by any peaceful means. So I don't hold them in any way responsible. Um, but it is very worrying that on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine at the Olympics in China, that Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping announced a no-limits partnership, and that that partnership has uh, withstood even the invasion of Ukraine, and that China appears to be Russia's principal supporter and facilitator of that invasion. Uh, the sanctions against the Russian uh, Federation would be far more crippling if it wasn't for the fact that the Chinese government uh, has stepped up and continues to be a source of both income for Russia, uh, but also a source of critical goods that allows the Russian government to continue to function and to continue to prosecute this war. And so I'm very worried that uh, if Russia was successful here, that China and Xi Jinping in particular would see that as a green light for him to take potential military action in our region, uh, particularly uh, his desire to annex uh, the people of Taiwan by force. And the Australian government's position under position parties of both uh, sides of government for many years has been very consistent here, which is that we would always oppose a unilateral change to, a status, to the status quo, particularly if it was to come about by force. Um, we believe that this could only be solved by peaceful means and through negotiation agreement. And the sabre-rattling and very serious military exercises that the Chinese Communist Party has engaged in around Taiwan is very destabilising and dangerous, and it is in our interest to prevent that from happening through deterrence. And that's one of the reasons why the AUKUS agreement is so important. Mm. Well, um, you know, when I sat on the Trade Investment Growth Committee in Parliament, in my term in Parliament, um, as being a free marketeer, uh, it was very interesting to hear we did an inquiry on, you know, our Trade Investment Growth Committee on um, uh, diversification of trade. And then it became very clear that actually we needed to do a second inquiry, which was about diversification of trading partners. And it didn't matter who, um, in which witnesses we heard from, you know, where their political affiliations were, you know, what their academic interests were. We heard over and over again that Australia needed to have a China plus approach because China was decoupling. And I think, you know, COVID seemed to hasten 
this, you know, obvious aversion of the fact that, you know, sovereign supply and supply chains um, can become critical, that we need to partner with like-minded, um, you know, countries in order to make sure that we can continue to trade, even if uh, there are difficulties um, from a sort of a trading block point of view. And that brings into light the, you know, the Five Eyes alignment, but also AUKUS. So I was wondering, you know, what's your view on, you know, where this government is positioning itself? It seems very divided in the party room in Labor mm-hmm. uh, about whether they do support AUKUS or not. Um, personally, I think, um, you know, it was well received uh, internationally, perhaps not by the French, which is not surprising when they had, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, changed to their contracts, which has obviously had a big economic impact on them. But, uh, you know, that realignment um, with trusted partners globally is going to become more important, and particularly with trusted democracies that understand, you know, liberal democracy and the rule of law and the way that we do business um, and the the way that we share security aspects of keeping our region and our globe safe. What's your view on on AUKUS in particular and the Five Eyes um, Alliance? AUKUS is an enormously important opportunity for Australia, both a national security and defence opportunity, but also, frankly, an economic opportunity because we are going to get access, direct access, to the defence industrial bases of our two closest allies who happen to have the most advanced military technology industries in the world, and not just access to the technology that they are willing to provide to us, but an opportunity for Australian businesses to sell into those enormous markets in a way that is going to be much smoother than it ever was before. Um, So I'm very concerned that uh, there appears to be a very serious problem within Labor on support for AUKUS. It's certainly true that the Prime Minister and his senior ministers are supportive of AUKUS and are continuing our legacy there and and promise to deliver it. But a number of Labor backbenchers and uh, Labor-supporting unions and Labor branches have called into question the agreement, including, I regret to say, that the Labor member for Higgins, who was uh, apparently critical in a Labor caucus meeting of AUKUS, along with a number of her colleagues. And there have been motions at the Brisbane conference of the Labor Party, uh, at the upcoming Victorian State Conference of the Labor Party, where unions and branch members have questioned the agreement. And of course, um, Labor uh, luminaries and elders like Paul Keating and Bob Carr have also publicly attacked and undermined it. So the government has a very serious problem on its left flank. Um, They need to demonstrate much more leadership on this issue. They can't allow these motions to be debated and passed at their conferences. Imagine if the Liberal Party allowed these sort of things to be debated and passed at our conferences. Um, We would be uh, rightly pilloried by the press and the public for doing so. So I'm really disappointed that the Prime Minister and his senior ministers haven't got on top of this problem yet, and they really need to in the national interest. We've been providing rock-solid bipartisan support for all of their initiatives here. We want them to succeed in this area. Australia can't afford for them to fail. Um, but if they don't do the things necessary to build the support on the, in their own party, in their own movement, then we've got a big problem. Mm. Yeah, it's very disappointing when, you know, we have such a good foundation to build on um, and to build forward with. Uh, I suppose the other area, which is, you know, we've talked a lot about cybersecurity and, and, you know, and, the, and the sort of foreign, um, you know, issues that are, are at play at the moment. But, you know, coming back to home turf and, of course, the Home Affairs Department was created in 2017 to consolidate domestic and national security. Um, you know, I know in the last budget, you know, uh, well, certainly leading to the last election, Labor was big on rhetoric and, and, and it mm. seems now with our last federal budget, they're going to be weak on delivery with a, a, a cut of $1.1 billion um, mm. in the fourth 2023 to 2024 for resourcing of the Home Affairs Department. You know, do you, are they are they doing the right thing by doing the cuts? Um, where are they doing the cuts? What is that going to do with regards to that portfolio? And, and where do you think they're positioning themselves with regards to what seems to be a slow but pervasive unravelling of what has been previously a very successful operation in Sovereign Borders? 
I think the creation of the Home Affairs Portfolio and Department is one of the great national security achievements of the Turnbull government, um, which is underappreciated and should be recognised. It had great logic to it. It brought together all the national security policy and operational arms together under one roof, the Federal Police, ASIO, Border Force, all the expertise in the federal government together, and it made them working together on national security challenges facing our country seamless and interoperable, and that's really important. Now, Labor never liked it, but before the last election, they did not say they were going to dismantle the Home Affairs portfolio. That's exactly what they've done in everything but name. In fact, they've taken so many agencies out of uh, the Home Affairs portfolio. It really only exists in paper now, and that's a very regrettable thing, and it, and it is, was reflected in the budget. As you say, the government has already cut $1.1 billion from the Department of Home Affairs. It is a shell of its former self, and it is not operating effectively as a national security domestic policy agency, which it previously did, because so many of its responsibilities have been taken into the Attorney General's Department, and it is often not clear who is the lead agency uh, on these important matters of national security concern. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, at the times that we're going through, the uncertain security environment we're in, it's, it's a really irresponsible and dangerous thing to do. And I fear there'll be real world consequences for it. Mm. I mean, you know, this is the thing as we're heading into sort of uncertain economic times. And we know that post-COVID, there was a lot of support provided around the world for people to get through COVID. But it seems there's a lot of, you know, dire concerns about, you know, massively rising cost of living, increase in energy costs. Um, and this is not just in Australia, it's right around the world. And so, you know, the haves and the have-nots, the, the gaps may get bigger in certain countries that don't have the, you know, wonderful welfare support that we have. So, you know, the world is going to become you know, more unsafe going forward, particularly, you know, with the sort of cybersecurity threats, which makes it, you know, cheaper and easier to get to get rotten, I suppose. That's right. And, and what Labor has also done uh, in this budget is that they plan to cut up to $600 million out of the border protection budget of Home Affairs over the forward estimates over the next three years. And that's particularly dangerous because they have started to unwind some of our successful border protection policies. They've removed a key pillar of that, which was temporary protection visas. And there has been an increase in boats attempting to get to Australia since the election. It's been publicly reported that nine boats have attempted to get to Australia. And what that has required is an increase in resources from the Australian Navy to be provided for that border protection mission at a time when, frankly, their resources could be and should be better used elsewhere in the defence of Australia or the potential defence of Australia. So really, our border our protection resources are being stretched far too thinly, and I fear that it's only a matter of time before one of those boats gets through. And as we know from previous painful experience, once this starts, it is very hard to stop. And there is a very real human cost to it. Human trafficking is one of the worst modern crimes uh, against very desperate people who are taken advantage of. And to put them in unseaworthy, dangerous boats and, and put them on a long journey puts their lives at risk. And unfortunately, we know that's resulted in deaths before and none of us want to go back to that. Mm. And, and you're quite right. It's fine until it's not. Um, and this, you know, the Operation Sovereign Borders basically allowed people to come up by plane and gave them that opportunity. But then they were being processed in an appropriate way, but not putting their lives at risk. And as you said, there's people smugglers, you know, the criminals here, whether they're taking advantage of desperate people um, and, and regional processing um, and, and all the sort of elements of Operation Sovereign Borders is what, you know, kept it strong. But with this slow unravelling, it is very concerning that it'll be fine until it's not. And, and then it's mm. too too late to put the genie back in the bottle. So it's been wonderful chatting with you today. Thank you so much for your time. I know you are still sitting in the Senate, so we're lucky we haven't had a division called while we've been speaking, but thank you for taking the opportunity to speak with me. I love to leave um, my guests with the last question, and I know you're a big thinker, so I'll be very interested in um, your answer to this question, but I'd like to ask, what do you wish for in the next 100 years? 
Katie, I've got young children and hopefully they will be around or certainly their children will be around uh, in the next 100 years. And really what I want for them is that we're able to hand over to them a, a prosperous, secure, sovereign, liberal democracy. Um, because unfortunately, I think for the first time in a long time in Australia's history, that is an open question. Uh, the very bleak security environment that we are dealing with does mean that that's a threat. And I want them to, uh, I want to be able to hand over to them what our parents and their generation handed over to us. And that involved very real sacrifice for them. And this may involve very real sacrifice to us um, because I don't think any of us uh, should sleep easy at night if we know that we're putting at risk the unique special thing that we are beneficiaries of here in Australia, which is the most tolerant, the most diverse, the most pluralistic, the most prosperous country that has almost ever been seen on, on, in the history of the world. It's such a special thing and we have to do everything we can to preserve it. 100% concur with you. I think you and I are the same about keeping our, our future safe and I'd like to add in healthy and prosperous, mm. not just healthy from an individual's point of view but an institutional point of view. So mm. I want to hear someone who really cares about the underpinnings of our democracy, the institutional aspects that as a liberal democracy here in Australia, it's been wonderful chatting with you today. Thank you, James. Lovely to chat to you too, Katie. Thanks for having me. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully you'll learn as much as I do.